If you got your outline from the sermon handy, I want you to do me a favor. And you, you can make this a, a mental note if you want, but but you turn it over, write somewhere on there. I want you to, to make a list of the worst sins that you can think of. The worst sins. The absolute worst ones. What are the most terrible sins that a person could commit? So maybe a mental note, maybe jot down a quick list, something. The worst sins. If I were to poll you this morning as you're making your list, I would venture to say that some of the first things maybe that come to mind are things like murder, stealing, adultery or sexual morality of some kind, cheating, lying, abuse, pride, hatred of God, hatred of other people, not paying attention during the sermon. Some of you didn't laugh because you're not paying attention to the sermon. I mean, those are some of the worst sins that I can think of, especially the last one. And then, and then I, want you to, I want you to think as you're kind of jotting down your list there, I want you to think of who are the worst sinners that you know. And some of you just turned your head to look at the person next to you. That's not, not what I'm talking about. You just elbowed somebody. Hey, I think he's talking about you. That's not, who are the worst sinners that you're aware of? Maybe they are in this room. I don't know. But, but who, who are the worst sinners? I mean, you just think these people are so sinful, so terrible. Maybe you would say, well, it's, it's the people who commit those really bad sins. It's murderers. And it's thieves and adulterers and cheaters and liars and abusers and people who are arrogant and haters and people who don't listen to the sermon. All those people are the worst sinners that you can imagine. We're, we're going we're gonna to look at a, at a Bible story this morning about a guy who called himself the worst sinner ever. He wrote half the New Testament. Yet all along he thought of himself as the worst of all sinners. When you look at the core of his sin, I mean, at at its core, you look at what his sin was really about. It's the sin of unbelief in Jesus. And that's a sin, by the way, that all of us are born into. And so if the guy that we see today was the worst of all sinners because at his core, for a long part of his life, he was not a believer in Jesus. And if we are all born into that same sin of unbelief, guess what that makes us as well? The worst of all sinners. You wrote down a list of things that are sins that you would say, I've never done that. Thank God I have never done that. Well, you know, I may not be great, but at least I've never killed anybody. Or at least I didn't tell anybody that I did, right? I mean, that's, we've never done those things. And yet, as we will see in the story of Saul, who we later know as Paul, it is the sin of unbelief that is the worst of all sins. And it is that that makes him the worst of sinners. Now, if we're honest, we also commit the other ones, by the way. We also commit those two. If you, if you need a reference to go back and check just, you know, how good really am I, go back to Exodus 20, where the Ten Commandments are, and then go look in Matthew 5 through 7, where Jesus talks about, you know, you've heard it said this, but let me tell you a little bit deeper about what this means. You'll find out we commit all those sins too. So anyway, so you and I, good news today, we are the worst sinners the world has ever known. The worst ever. Some of us, all joking aside, are really feeling that way this morning really feeling like the worst of all sinners. 
really feeling as if what you have done cannot be forgiven, or at least shouldn't be forgiven. What you have done has caused you to be completely unlovable and irreparable. And maybe you're thinking, surely God has moved on and given up on me. But I want you to know there's hope this morning, even for the worst of all sinners. Even for the worst sinners the world has ever known, there's hope that God isn't done with you just yet. And we'll see that from today's Bible story. If you got your Bible, turn with me to Acts chapter 9. If you don't know anything about the Bible, as I tell you each week, please do not let that stop you. There's a Bible there somewhere around you, in front of you, under the chair, behind the pew, whatever. It's, it's very close to the translation I'll be using this morning. Feel free to pick one of those up. The Bible's divided into two parts. Old Testament toward the front, the New Testament toward the back, and then from there divided into books. We're looking at the book of Acts. That is in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then the book of Acts. Where we pick up this story chronologically is basically where we left it off last week. We're in a series that will end here in just a couple of weeks called Bible Stories You Thought You Knew. And so we're looking at how these Bible stories, maybe that you learned, as I mentioned, my Sunday school teachers here, maybe you learned in Sunday school years ago, what really was God trying to say through that? Because as we know, the Bible is not a, just a series of independent and disconnected stories. It is one big story with a bunch of different episodes in there. And so we're looking this morning at the episode about a guy named Saul who, who was part of the Jewish movement, the Jewish leadership, trying to stomp out those who believed in Jesus, trying to stomp out belief in Jesus as the Messiah. And you may say, well, why in the world were they trying to do that? I mean, he, didn't he love them? Didn't he show that he loved them by dying on the cross and so on? Well, if you know a little bit about their background and about what they believed in so much, the, the Jewish leadership, and as we'll see, Saul being a Pharisee himself, they were trying to protect the Torah, the law of God, and the temple, the dwelling place of God, from any threat and any attack. And when they looked at Jesus, what did he threaten and what did he attack? They thought the law of God and the temple of God. And Christians were claiming that the law and the temple had reached their completion in Jesus. That, that he fulfilled all those things. And so when the Jewish leadership looked, that's a threat to what they believed in and they defended it, the Bible says, zealously with physical aggression. That's not just that they got fired up and rioted. They did something physically about it. And so they look at Jesus and they say, there's no way this is our Messiah. There, there's no way. Our Messiah is going to be a conqueror. He's going to take over. He's going to elevate us to a status that we don't currently have. And it will be one in which we no longer are subject to people like the Roman government. And so when they see this so-called Messiah die a, a shameful death on a cross, they say, there's no way. Not our Messiah. You know, he claimed to be, but he's a sad story. We'll move on and find somebody else. So that's who Paul is, okay? Who he is, known as Saul here, as we'll see in Luke chapter, Acts chapter 9, rather. Uh, Paul is the guy who, who thinks he's doing God's will by, by strongly, physically even going against 
uh, those radical ideas of Jesus and his followers. So look at it, chapter 9, verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul, this follows the, the, the uh, execution of Stephen we saw last week. Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and requested letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found anyone belonging to the way, either men or women, he might bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So you get the idea of what he's doing? He has gotten letters that give him permission to go into all these cities and drag out those who belong to the way, those who are Christians following Jesus, to drag them out, have them arrested, and thrown into jail. So you get an idea of who Saul is before he met Jesus. As he will look back on it, as we see it, as we look back on it, he's an enemy of God. Doesn't know it, but he is an enemy of God. It probably would have been hard for him to think of himself in those terms. <laughs> and hard for us to think of ourselves in those terms. We like to think that we and most everybody, most everybody else, not everybody, most everybody else is basically good. There's some really bad people. But me and most of my friends and most of my family members, or at least some of them, maybe a couple, are at least basically good, right? We like to think that. We, we like to think that we are basically good. And we would have said the same thing about Saul. He was a guy who followed God's Old Testament laws to the letter. In fact, he would say about himself later, he was blameless according to the law, indicating that maybe he did everything right. Literally. He followed every law perfectly. He was well respected in the Jewish community. This guy's very, very smart. And he would have never appeared to be a man on his way to hell, but that's exactly who he was. And that's who all of us are without Jesus. We aren't just good people who do a few things that aren't so good. When we bring our kids down here on Sunday mornings and we gather for prayer with them, do you realize that, that who we're gathering with, and, and parents and grandparents, I know this will pierce your soul, but who we're gathering with are born sinners destined for hell apart from Jesus. And I, I love kids. I mean, I absolutely love them. They're so fun. Next week, we're going to have our Christmas tree up right over here. And I will not say this year that we are going to light the Christmas tree. Because if you were here last year, you will remember. And if you weren't, it was maybe the most classic moment that I've had in my 10 years at Elm Grove. Because Chandler Futrell, he says, you mean we're going to set it on fire? And it wasn't a shock. He was pumped. We get to do that? He was so excited. So I love kids. I mean, I love them. I've got four of my own. I love them. I was with my, my family this, this weekend and, and lots of kids there, and, and I love them. But we have to understand as parents that apart from Jesus, they are not just good little people that at some point they decide whether they're going to be good or bad. They're born sinners with a sinful nature, and it's not just what they do that needs to be forgiven. It's who they are, and the same is true for all of us. That we are born sinners in unbelief. And it's not just what we do, some bad things, or what we need to have that forgiven so that we can be good again. No, no, it's who we are. It's from our core, everything about us that needs to be changed. And so apart from Jesus, before Jesus, that's who we are. And that's who Saul is. And so we are all Saul this morning, apart from Jesus. All of us, haters of God, sinful, dead in our sin. That's who Saul was and that's who we are. Now, how then did this guy go from being a persecutor of the church, a hater of God, to a preacher? 
to the first and greatest Christian missionary. Look in verse 3. I'll show you how. As he traveled and was nearing Damascus, a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Jesus himself appears. That's how a man goes from being a dead sinner to a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, is that Jesus shows up on the scene and changes everything about him. This guy, an unlikely Christian, if that makes sense, which of course we all are unlikely Christians, but this guy who, who would have never said, oh, I, I, those folks are okay, I, you know, I, I can go to church, I can be with them, no, no, he would have never said that. He would have thought of Christians as rebels, and rebel scum even, if you're a Star Wars fan. He would have thought of them as rebel scum, that's who they were. And in a moment, in an instant... Paul is completely changed, showing again that a lesson from this unlikely Christian, the first of three that I'll show you this morning, that God can save anyone. God can save anyone. Even a guy like Saul. As he met Jesus there on the road to Damascus, everything about him becomes different. But it's interesting that it wasn't that he simply converted from one religion to another. Instead, what he saw finally is that everything that he thought was right, everything that had value in his life, everything that he knew to be true about the world and even about his own Jewish religion truly did find its fulfillment in Jesus and Jesus alone. That's what he discovered on the road to Damascus. And he's saved for all eternity from his sin of unbelief in Jesus Christ. The first sin, by the way, we've got to be saved from is the sin of unbelief. It does us no good just as a, as a, as a by the way. It does us no good to raise our children, to bring up teenagers, to become adults who simply avoid certain sins that we know are really bad, and then never confess the sin of unbelief in Jesus Christ. You know what we are? Good people cleaned up on the outside, good enough for this world, but not good enough for heaven because only faith in Jesus Christ makes us good enough for heaven. That makes sense. And so Saul was a guy who, blinded by this light from heaven, knocked to his knees, completely changed. And if we are all just like him this morning, then we know that because God could save Saul that day, God can save anybody. Even people who don't think they need saving. Even those with a regrettable past. Even those who are seemingly good. Even those who are on their deathbeds. Even those that everybody are evil. God can save anyone. Now, my, my salvation experience, just so you know, was not like this. I didn't see a flashing light. I wasn't made blind for, for three days. I wasn't knocked to the ground. In fact, I was eight years old, sitting on my bed in my home in Louisville, Kentucky. No flashing lights, no voice from heaven, none of that kind of stuff, but an acknowledgement and a realization that I am a sinner, dead apart from Jesus Christ, in desperate need of a Savior, and without Him, not only will I be bound for hell, but I am lost on this earth as well. That was my experience. You may say, well, I, you know, my experience wasn't quite like what Paul's is. Some of you have had that experience. I've talked with you. 
an absolute 180 from who you used to be. And it was evident to everybody. And some of you say, well, I was, you know, I'm, I was just a kid who believed in Jesus. And let me tell you, it's still a 180. From unbelief to belief, all the other stuff is just the extras God cleans up over time. Anyway, God can save anyone. Then look at verse 6. Get up, Jesus says to him, and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the sound but seeing no one. Then Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they took him by the hand and led him into Damascus. He was unable to see for three days, and he did not eat or drink. Not only on that road to Damascus did Jesus save his soul, but, with, but he did with Saul what he does with anybody who truly believes in and truly follows Jesus, and that is he shows us that God not only can save anyone, but God can change anyone. You realize that's God's will for your life as a believer in Jesus? That you would be changed? Not that you would simply add a little Jesus, sprinkle a little Jesus on your Christmas cookies like the sprinkles? No. That you would be changed completely from the inside out. That's God's will for your life as a believer. You want to know what is God's will for my life? We like to try to find it like a needle in a haystack. It's very simple. That you would be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ by the power of God's Spirit living in and through you. That is God's will. And so we see here that Saul goes from a man who is a hater of God to someone kneeling before God and someone who, who thought he was obeying God to someone who truly obeys Jesus because we see that what happens is that Paul gets up, as Jesus tells him, go into the city. You know what Paul did? He went into the city. <laughs> you may not know everything God wants you to do, but let me encourage you to obey him to the extent that you know how to obey him. You may not know all that the Bible has to say. You may not understand it completely. You may only know, well, it looks, I just read this verse, and it appears that God just wants me to, to not do this. Is that true? Yeah, okay. So I will just simply obey to the extent that I know to obey. And then you'll grow each day, every single day. Uh, uh, what Paul did was simply obey the Lord. Jesus said, go into the city. What did Paul do? He went into the city. Everything about him changed. And throughout his lifetime, he would constantly be more conforming to the image of Jesus. He would say things like in Philippians 3, reflecting on his life, he said, you know, I, I, I was everything. I, I had it all, but I really had nothing. I knew everything, but I really knew nothing. And everything before this time, everything before Jesus, all the good, all the bad, he would say, it means nothing compared to knowing Jesus. That's what it's really all about, he would say. What a, what a change. He would say in Philippians chapter 4, the very next chapter, when he's thinking about his time and he's writing this letter from prison and he thinks about his time of having a lot, the good times in his life, he thought, and then he thinks about the times when he's scraping the bottom of the barrel and he has nothing and he would say, it's all fine because I know how to be content regardless of the circumstances. He would say the secret to being content, then he would say in Philippians 4.13, one of those great verses we often take out of context and make it about sports or something. But he would say about his contentment, he would say, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. What a change in his attitude. He would say in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, 
God sent something to him, some sort of physical ailment of some kind that he doesn't specify. We're not totally sure. People have guessed and nobody knows exactly, but something to humble him, to keep him from being too proud. And he prayed over and over and over. Three times he says, I prayed for God to take this away from me. God, this is not helping me. Lord, please deliver me from this. And you know what God said? Absolutely. I'm going to show how great I am by delivering from this. You know what he said? No. No. I'm going to give you more than you can handle. Why? So that you'll trust me and you'll understand my grace in your life. What a change. And if you're a follower of Jesus, then God can and he will and he wants to change you as well. Even that part of you. Even that habit. Everything. And as Paul would experience... It was that obedience every day that was both the evidence of the transformation in his life and it was the means for transformation. Those who follow Jesus will obey Jesus and those who obey Jesus will become more like Jesus. Do you see how it works? Obedience is a two-edged sword. It both gives us evidence that we truly do know the Lord and it produces in us a greater knowledge of the Lord. Not about perfection, but it's about a change of heart. Where once I was bent toward disobedience, now I want to obey. I don't always obey, but I'm convicted when I don't. I confess it to the Lord, and I get back up and move forward. God can save anyone. Even that person in your life that you stop praying for. God can change anyone. Even that person who they say they're a Christian, but they haven't been living it. Even you, even me. And we get to the third part, verse 10. It says, Now in Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, here I am, Lord, he said. Get up and go to the street called Straight, the Lord said to him, to the house of Judas and ask for a man from, from Tarsus named Saul, since he is praying there. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and placing his hands on him so that he may regain his sight. You think at this point, oh, okay, all right, God's just telling this dude, he's got some, you know, some things to do. I can almost sense Ananias' tone here. Uh, Lord, do you ever read the scripture and you don't read in any emotion or tone? Lord, I've heard many people, you know, about this man. no. He's hesitant, a little skeptical. Um, seriously? God, you know who you're talking about, right? I've heard, look at it, I've heard from many people about this man. Maybe you haven't. I've heard how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. You read that news story? Seen that tweet? And he has authority here from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. Um, yeah, no thanks. I'm good, I, I'm going to follow you, but I just do not die today. It's kind of what Ananias is saying. I just do not go to prison today. God, if it's all the same to you, I'm not trying to say no, but I'm not really saying yes right now either. Look what God says. The Lord said to him, go. Isn't it great? He could just stop there. Go. For this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles, kings, and the sons of Israel. Now, this is Saul we're talking about. 
I will certainly show him how much he must suffer for my name and, and hang on to that. So Ananias left and entered the house. Then he placed his hands on him and said, and, li- and, and the first two words of this are so great. Look at the change that even Ananias is experiencing as he walks with Jesus towards someone that he's skeptical about, towards someone that he fears, towards someone who's a new believer. He says these words, what? Brother Saul. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't say, uh, hey, buddy. Um, heard maybe now you're a follower of Jesus. I don't really believe it, but... You know, God appeared to me apparently in a vision. I'm supposed to come here, so I'm just doing what I'm supposed to do, I guess. He says, Brother Saul. Do you know that the early church would address one another as family members? By the way, when I first came here in 2008, and you all started calling me brother, it's like, what? That's weird. It's pretty strange. I ain't going to lie to you. I, I just kind of played along and smiled, but I'm like, this is weird. And then when you put all three, Brother Brad Burns, I mean, it's just, it's a mouthful. It's not any good to say. And, you know, and I, you know, I just, but I've come, I've come to understand and appreciate when we call one another by family type names. That makes sense? Because we all stand on equal ground at the foot of the cross. My first name, by the way, is not Pastor. Uh, my, my first name is simply Brad. My relationship to you is Father, my relationship to you is brother, and is who we are together. Anyway, he says, Brother Saul, verse 17, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road while you were traveling has sent me to you so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And at once, something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul was with the disciples in Damascus for some days. Immediately, he began proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues. He is the Son of God. Now, there's a reason verse 21 is there, because it's true. But all who heard him were astounded and said, Isn't this the man? who in Jerusalem was destroying those who called on this name and then came here for the purpose of taking them as prisoners to the chief priest? What? Saul grew more capable, it says, and kept confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that this one was the Messiah, the very one he hated. After many days, the Jews conspired to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul, so they were watching at the gates day and night, intending to kill him. But his disciples took him by by night and lowered him in a large basket through an opening in the wall. Here's the third lesson. You see what's happening with, with Saul here? God saves his soul, begins to change his heart inside and out, and then he proves that God not only can save anyone, can change anyone, but God can use anyone. God can use anyone. They're they're shocked. This guy just a few days ago was trying to kill you guys, right? Now he's one of you. Okay. Now he's Brother Saul, right? Just come on in, buddy. Saul must have wondered, okay, uh, supposed to proclaim that Jesus is Lord now I've seen him resurrected and now I believe and but I mean honestly God I mean I, I'm a I'm a Pharisee I'm someone that hated your people they're scared to death of me God, give me some time maybe to try to you know make it better there's no time 
God says, why are you persecuting me? Saul says, who are you, Lord? Acknowledging Jesus as Lord. Jesus says, get up and go. Saul gets up and goes. His heart begins to change. And immediately God puts him to use. Immediately. No trial period. God just simply puts him to use. And God would use him in so many incredible ways. Over and over, Paul would say that he was praying for the people in the churches that he had started. Over you see Paul teaching and writing and preaching, serving the churches, planting, starting different church groups in different areas in these towns and cities, the area in which he lived and traveled to. And of course, he was on mission for the Lord. But you saw there in the previous verses that Jesus said it wasn't going to be easy. He said, I'm going to show him how much he's going to have to suffer. Now, Paul's role was somewhat unique, we'll be honest. And yet I do think there are some universal themes about it. I think he summed it up best about ministry when he said in Galatians 4.19, writing to the Galatians that had frustrated him, that had confused him, that had gotten things wrong, that had drifted in their faith, that, that weren't exactly the people that taught them to be. And he said, I am in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. And I don't have a clue what that means because I don't know how much anguish there is in childbirth. But Paul, summing up as best he could, I've seen these ladies go through this and that's the kind of pain that I'm experiencing. That's the kind of suffering that I'm willing to go through so that you people he would be writing to can experience the life that Jesus wants for you. Ministry, folks, is not easy. And I don't mean professional ministry alone. I mean the ministry that God has called you to do in your families, in your, in your homes, in your schools, on your teams, in your businesses, wherever it may be. That ministry, God using you, is not easy. But I wonder, who is it that you're in anguish for? And willing to say, I will be in anguish until Christ is formed in you. Or until I die. One of the two. I wonder if you'd say, God, use me in that way. If God can use Saul, he can use anyone, even people without training, even people with a past, even people who think that God can't use them, even you, even me. I love this story. I love this story that God can save anyone, that God can change anyone, that God can use anyone. The story that tells us yet again that once you meet Jesus, you'll never, you'll never be the same. To walk with Jesus is to be transformed. Not simply to be more comfortable in life, or to get a boost of energy, or to be seen as a good person or as a good citizen, or to gain some advantage in this world, but to transform every area of your life, in your mind, in your will, in your emotions, all of you. So I wonder this morning, what is it that God needs to do in your life? Does he need to save you this morning? As you call out to him in faith, who are you, Lord? You are my Lord and my Savior, and I confess it this morning, that Jesus is Lord. Does he need to save you? Does he need to change you in some way, some part of you? Maybe that part that you've been so unwilling to submit to him? Or maybe you say, you know what, I just know God needs to use me in some way. 
I'm not sure what it is, but I'm willing today to submit to hear God, whatever you want to do in my life, however you want to use me, Lord, send me. For some, that may be into some sort of vocational ministry to work in the church on a full-time basis. And you'd say, you know, I've been fighting it for years. But I really believe that God has called me to this. I don't know what it means, but I'm willing to surrender to it. For others, it's, you know, God, use me right where I am on my team, in my school, in, in my job, in my home. How is it that you need to respond today? Maybe God has knocked you down like he did Paul. Once again, to show you your need for him, your failure of life on your own. And you'd say today, Lord, save me, change me, use me. How is it that you need to respond? Let's pray together.